First Peter chapter 5. First Peter chapter 5. Again, we're wrapping up our study of First Peter. We've been here since January, verse by verse, week by week as we've gone through it. Really an exciting season for us as a church. I hope you've been reading along with us. I hope you've been studying, and I hope these words to the elect exiles have been transformational for you. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting. By the way, that word exhorting, when I was a kid, I never had a clue what that meant. It, it just, it means to strongly encourage, to urge you. It's like I'm urging you and declaring, I'm proclaiming, I'm telling you that this, meaning this letter that Peter has written, is the true grace of God. Peter is saying, I have written this letter, and in fact, it is proclaiming the true gift of God. It's more than just my letter. It's not bad news. It is good news. It is gift of God. Therefore, he says, stand firm in it, this true grace of God. Be resolved in it. Be purposed in it. Have conviction in this true grace of God. Verse 13, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Our big truth and our final big truth as we study through 1 Peter, stand firm in the true grace of God. Stand firm in the true grace of God. Be resolved in it. Anchor your convictions in it. Stand firm in the true grace of God. So when he says that, when he says this true grace of God that is found within 1 Peter, he's referring to this letter, he's referring to the teaching, to the inspired words of the Holy Spirit that are coming out to us, the elect exiles that are found in the letter. Yes, there's some themes we can see, and we're going to look at two of those. I'm going to take the first one. Pastor Mike's going to come back in a minute and take the second one. The first one, big idea number one, stand firm in the grace of a living hope. We've been talking about it throughout. We were introduced to this theme in the very beginning, back in chapter 1, verse 3. Peter writes, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Did you catch it? We'll read it again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Church, listen, hope is a powerful thing. Hope is a powerful, powerful thing. One theologian said, everything that is done in the world is done by hope. No merchant or tradesman would set himself to work if he did not hope to reap benefit thereby. Hope is a powerful thing. And when we think of hope, you and I think of hope, we generally think of two types of hope. First, there is an uncertain hope. It's the thing that we desire and kind of wish for. We don't know if it's going to happen, but we really, really want it to. And this can be good, and this can also be really dangerous. An example of that type of hope is why people play the lottery. Many of you have heard that it's a rightful expression that the lottery is a tax on the poor. That's not just because that dollar to pay the t- buy the ticket is a percentage more to the poor person than the rich person. It's that the poor as a demographic, those below the poverty line, are much more likely to play the lottery than those who live above it. Why? Is it that they do not understand the astronomical odds that are against them? No, they understand. They pay for hope. They pay for the distraction, the hope, the one minute, the five minutes, the ten minutes, the hour, that what if? The uncertain hope that becomes a distraction. It's a powerful thing. It'll lead you to do something that is just incredibly unlikely in hope. I think of the first people who wanted to fly and they, you know, strapped feathers to their arms and jumped off of cliffs. What were those people thinking? It's uncertain hope. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's dangerous. But there's another type of hope that is the hope we mostly see in Scripture, and it is a certain hope. A certain hope. This is a truth we hold to, we count on, we wait for. It is absolute, it is real, it is a reality. And we know, we know it will be experienced. And so we count on it. We hold to it. We wait for it. 
This is the hope that we read about through the pages of Scripture. The greatest example I can try to demonstrate uh, back to you and kind of communicate back to you, kids, this will make sense to you too. You have heard about the armor of God, the helmet of salvation. And when Paul writes to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 5, he says, put on for a helmet the hope of salvation. The qualifier, the hope of salvation. Church, watch. Paul is saying, guard your worldview. Guard the lens in which you see the world and interpret all things. Guard your mind, your cognitive ability, the way you rationalize, the way you think, the way you see the world. Guard it with the certain hope that is in your salvation. Don't forget it. See the world through it. Guard your thinking with it. And so here, Peter reminds the elect exiles, their hope is certain. It's certain. Their hope is alive. Because their hope is not in their capabilities. See, perhaps they've lost some of their capabilities. They can't do the things they used to do. Their hope is not in their life. Perhaps their life is threatened, in danger, but their hope is not in their life. Their hope is not in their legacy. Perhaps they are a small fish in a small pond. Listen, their hope is not in themselves. Left to themselves, they have no hope. Left to ourselves. We have no hope. But the elect exiles' hope is alive. Why? Because their hope is in Jesus. That's how Peter will end this letter. In Jesus. In Christ. Our hope. Paul writes to the Ephesians in chapter 4, and he says to the Ephesians, you have one hope, one Lord. Therefore, if you are a Christian, a Jesus follower, one who identifies with him in his glory to come and in this world, rejoice. Rejoice. Regardless of your circumstance, regardless of your suffering, regardless of your persecution and the hardships that are around you and the attacks that may come, Church, if you are in Christ Jesus, rejoice. Stand firm in the gift of God that is your certain hope in Him. You say, well, that that sounds, I'm like, yes, I'm going to do that thing. But Daniel, that's really hard to actually do that thing. Those circumstances are really tough. There's two hurdles that we have to fight through in this. They're common, we've seen them throughout 1 Peter. The first one, many are afraid to pursue Jesus as their one hope in this world. Many are afraid to pursue Jesus. Listen, I'm not talking about the cultural Jesus. 
In the last two days, I've heard the culture define Jesus so many different ways. I'm talking about the Jesus that reveals himself in Scripture. Many are afraid to pursue Jesus as their one hope. Not a hope, their one hope in this world. They are afraid to take up their cross and truly follow Jesus. They are ensnared and captive by fear. Listen, not the kind of fear like startle fear, not the kind of fear like phobia fear. The kind of fear that's set when something or someone threatens to inconvenience you, take from you. The kind of fear when your in-laws say, we're thinking about staying an extra week. That kind of fear. Many are anxious to let go of the hope they have in themselves. They are scared of the suffering they might and will experience if identified with Jesus. If they live their life as if he and he alone is their one hope. And if this is you, stand firm in the grace of a living hope. Peter says, stand firm in it. This living hope in Jesus that is the true grace of God and if it costs you everything in this life so what you have Jesus see if in our faith Jesus is sufficient and we lose everything in this life so what what have we lost compared to what we have gained Jesus is our only hope. One hope, one Lord. And so rejoice, rejoice. Rejoice in your suffering. Rejoice in your persecution. Rejoice in whatever may come. Why? Because you are identified with Jesus. And your hope in him is alive. It cannot be threatened. It cannot be taken from you. It doesn't end with your last breath. And know that your fear and your anxiety of letting go of the hope that is in yourself is pride. It deceives you. It robs you of glory in Jesus. Because in Jesus, what is there to fear? Paul said, what shall we say to these fears, to these things? If God is for you, who can be against you? Do not fear, live in the hope that is in Jesus. Second hurdle, there are a few 
a few who are weary of pursuing Jesus as their only hope in this world. They are tired of the pain, the hurt, and the suffering experience. They have laid down their hope in themselves. They have lived differently. They have dated and married differently. They have parented differently. They have worked and retired differently. They have served differently, spoken differently, spent differently, learned differently, loved differently. Are they perfect? No. But they don't look like the rest of the world and they have the scars to show it. By God's grace, they have grown day over day, dying to self, taking up their cross and following Jesus. And they will proclaim, he is worthy. But they are weary. Like a distance runner at the end of the race where every step jars at their hope. See, what are you talking about? Think about Peter for just a second. We've been in his letter. Peter denies Jesus, remember? Now, Peter had spent three years following Jesus. You really think in that moment after everything Peter has seen, he's like, like, I mean, really sitting there purposefully, like denying Jesus, like I have nothing to do with him? Or do you think Jesus or Peter in that moment is just like, man, not now. I just, I just need an easy way out. Just leave me alone. hurt, tired, and weary. You're looking for some easy way out. If this is you, be reminded and rejoice. Rejoice. Jesus is worthy. He is your only hope. Rejoice. Put on the helmet that is the hope of your salvation. Find zeal in your hope, not the circumstances around you, and press on, rejoicing along the way. Why? Because your circumstances are easy? No, but because you are identified with the one true God. Because you have a hope that is alive. Press on. Stand firm in the grace of of a living hope that is in Jesus. The team's gonna come up and we're gonna continue to worship in song and we're gonna sing praises to Jesus, our hope in life and death. And as we do, church, listen, I have no idea today what you fear. I don't know the persecutions and the cost of following Jesus that you've experienced. I simply know this, Jesus is the only hope you have. And if you are identified with him, rejoice. He is worthy. Rejoice, Peter says, insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory in God rests upon you. You say, how can I rejoice when I'm suffering? Stand firm with conviction 
in the true grace of God, this living hope that is certain, look beyond the suffering and look forward in hope. Be resolved, not in hope in yourself, but be resolved in the hope that is only found in Christ Jesus. Listen to the way Paul says this to the Romans as we continue to worship in song. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us would you stand and continue to sing part two you've tucked your Bible away you've turned your iPad off pull that back out turn it back on open back up to 1 Peter chapter 5 we're gonna wrap up this letter and you thought you got off easy this morning with a shorter message, huh? Not so fast. First Peter chapter 5. See, really, your teaching team, uh, one of the things I appreciate, your teaching team, we're kind of determined that on our own, we're not much, but between the three of us, maybe we make one good preacher, you know? So maybe between the two of us this morning, we could come up with one good message to wrap up this incredible letter of First Peter. And Daniel said it earlier, I, I hope that 1 Peter has transformed you as a Jesus follower like it has me, like it has our family. I, I pray that it's an exercise for you and your family to gather maybe around the dinner table, whatever that looks like, and say, hey, what have we learned through 1 Peter? What has God shown us? What has God transformed in us through this letter over the last six months? I hope you do that as individuals and as a family over the next few weeks. So how does Peter conclude this letter? We've looked at it already. How does Peter conclude a letter written to brothers and sisters in the Roman world, again, who are striving to live faithfully in a world that's not their home? How does he conclude this letter? How does he conclude this letter to us in 2022 who maybe are realizing for the first time that to follow Jesus faithfully in our culture is going to cost us. How does he conclude this letter? How does he conclude this letter to faithful Jesus followers who maybe you see so many others chasing empty pursuits, settled for for watered-down Christianity, or maybe we see so many walking away from the church altogether. How does Peter end this letter as encouragement and a challenge for us? So we've read it already. I just want to read verse 12 again. Remind us of the big truth. Daniel's given us one big idea. I'm going to give you a second big idea. We're going to talk about that briefly. Verse 12 again. Let's look there together. Peter writes and he says, by Silvanius, that's Silas, evidently this was the fellow that delivers this letter, 
He says, a faithful brother, as I regard him, he says, I have written briefly to you. I've exhorted you through this letter. Strongly encouraged. I've declared to you through this letter. That word declare literally is the word testify. It's as if Peter is saying, I'm confirming by firsthand personal evidence. Remember, this is the man that walked with Jesus for three and a half years. He's testifying by personal firsthand account. And he says that this, this letter that I've written you, these preceding five chapters, what I've written here about is ultimately the true grace of God. And then this incredible admonition. If you circle it in your Bible, circle it, star it, whatever it is, he says this, stand firm in it, brothers and sisters. I love that. Stand firm in it. So the big truth, again, is to stand firm in the true grace of God. We've talked about it already, but when he says grace here, don't get some nebulous idea of this idea of grace. Grace has been used throughout this letter as a term representing all that God has graciously and freely done. All that God has graciously and freely given. Wrapped up in the perfect, inimaginable character of who God is. Is flowing out of him all that he has done. Watch this. All he is doing and all he will do on behalf of his elect exiles. Grace. And Peter says, I've written to you about this incredible grace of God. Stand firm in it. The idea of to stand firm is to take your stand. Anchor down in it. it. It is a command of action. It's not passive. It's very similar to what the Apostle Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.1. There he says, you therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. That is found in Christ Jesus for every born-again believer. This idea of standing firm, and again, Daniel mentioned this, but think about this, this idea of standing firm, hold your ground, anchor deeply. It's implying a reality that, that there are things, there are forces working against us to move us away from where we are anchored as followers of Jesus. Peter even mentions some of those in this letter. It, quickly, he mentions the flesh, the residue of sin that's in every believer. He says, I urge you as aliens and strangers. We looked at this back in 1 Peter 2. I urge you as aliens and strangers abstain from fleshly lust. They're waging war against your soul. Stand firm in the grace of God. It's this worldly system working against us. Paul mentions it in Ephesians 4 when he says, Don't be tossed here and there to and fro by every wind of doctrine, everything that comes down the pike. Don't you be tossed to and fro by every false thing that comes down the pike or that you see on Twitter or Facebook. Stand firm in the grace of God. And by the way, in just a few weeks, we're going to be in 2 Peter when, second, when he comes back and writes the second letter challenging and exposing false teachers and false doctrine 
that are tempted to cause us to not stand firm or to stray away. It's going to expose that in 2 Peter. He even mentions the devil himself trying to uproot us from standing firm. We saw this even a few weeks ago. Be of sober spirit. Be on your alert. You have an adversary. He's prowling around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Stand firm. So Daniel mentioned one aspect of this grace of God that we are to stand firm in. It is a future reality of our living hope that is unshakable in the person of Christ because of what Christ has done, because of what Christ will do. We can stand firm in the grace of God that is found in Christ, this living hope. The second one I want us to look at that's been a theme throughout this book, this letter of 1 Peter, I hope you've seen this theme is this one. This is our second big idea. Stand firm in the grace of belonging. Stand firm in the grace of belonging. Belonging to what? We belong by the grace of God to the people of God. There is a theme that has been pulled throughout these chapters. Peter mentions it over and over and over to these elect exiles. The recurring theme is this immense value. The true grace of God that is the gift of belonging by grace to God's redeemed family. You belong by grace to the family of God. And Peter says that is a grace. That is a grace we are to anchor in. We are to stand firm in it. He reminds these exiles, and it's a reminder to us, you have not only been redeemed by Christ, but you've been redeemed by Christ into a family, the people of God. He says this throughout the letter. Just, you don't have to look at these. Just listen how he says it. 1 Peter 1.22, he says, Having purified your souls... By your obedience to the truth, you've been born again. For a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. You've been born again into the family of God. You belong to the family of God by His grace. Stand firm in it. 1 Peter 2.5 says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. To, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. You are being built up as a holy house acceptable to God. You belong to the people of God by the grace of God. Stand firm in that and all the implications of that in our lives. 1 Peter 4.8, he says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of transgressions. Even here at the end, these last few verses that we look at, that let's be honest, we tend to read in our Bibles and we think these are just meaningless greetings to people we're not even sure who he's talking to. We, we miss this and huge truth. Even in verse 14, as the book comes to a close, Peter says, greet one another, greet one another with the kiss of love. <laughs> Now you read that and you go, to, what's, what's, Paul and Dan, what's Mike and Daniel going to do with that? The kiss of love. Well, we don't practice that a whole lot in our culture. But this is a sign of affection of God's people to one another. If you chose to come up after the service and plant a big kiss on Pastor Daniel's cheek, you would be very biblical in doing it. All right. 
don't necessarily recommend it. Brotherly affection. Brotherly love. Now watch. He ends this letter and he says, Peace, wholeness, completeness to all of you. The, the people of God who are, here's the last two words in this letter. I want you to notice this. In Christ. You are in Christ. And by grace, your union with Christ means that there is a union with one another and this incredible thing called the church. There is the grace of belonging to something that is bigger than ourselves. We have been redeemed unto Christ to belong to a family, the people of God. We are in union with Him and we are in union with one another. Now quickly, I want to show you an example very fast in in 1 Peter that he mentions. We looked at this weeks ago. I'm not going to take a long time to look at this. You can look in your Bibles if you'd like, but look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. Here's an example of the grace given to us by God of belonging. Stand firm in it. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, he says, but you... And in the original language, that is you all, right? He said, all of you, people of God, not every person, but those who belong to Christ, all of you, you are a chosen race. This is an immense grace of belonging. That even though we may be scorned and devalued by the world, Peter reminds you were chosen, sovereignly elected by God. And that is communicating immense value. You are a chosen race. He says you are a royal priesthood. Meaning we by grace collectively belong to this royal king, King Jesus and his priesthood. We belong to serve this king. We belong to serve on behalf of this king. And also connected to this is future tense. One day in eternity we will reign with this king. Immense. This is the grace of God. Stand firm in it. He says you're a holy nation. Like Israel, the church now has the unique place in all of creation of being set apart. Holy, distinct from. We mentioned earlier the different way we live because we have been declared holy. You're not like the world. You've been set apart. You are a holy people. Why? How? The grace of God in Christ Jesus. He purchased your positional holiness. He bought it by his blood. Therefore, we are able to pursue practical holiness in our day-to-day life because he's purchased our positional holiness and declared his people to be holy. Not individuals, collectively the holy people of God. Incredible. You are a people for his own possession, it says in verse 9. We as a people belong to one another because we belong to him. But watch this. This means we don't, we're not our own. We've been bought with a price. We're not merely individuals doing our own thing. We belong to him and we belong to one another as members of God's people. He says that you may proclaim the excellencies 
of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Just lavish language of God's grace given freely to us in Christ Jesus. Remind yourselves over and over and over through the revealed truth of Scripture of this grace of God and stand firm in it. Stand firm in the realities of what is ours in Christ Jesus, purchased by His grace. Listen, it should jump off the page to you that the language here of belonging is much more than mere togetherness. Oh, that means we need to be together. Yes, we need to be together. But there's much more than that. It's much more than just shallow community that the world offers. It's much more than a warm welcome of God's people. It is a rock-solid, unwavering, biblical reality that we have been purchased by the grace of God. His cross and resurrection has bought us. We are in union with Christ. We are now in union with Him. We have value. We have a purpose. We have a king. And you belong to the people of God. Stand firm in the grace of that. Stand firm. Stand firm that is the grace of this hope that is in Christ and stand firm in this grace that is this grace of belonging. See, the message of the world wants to give you plenty of things to chase about your identity and who you are, but the Bible declares and promises that in Christ our identity is not rooted in what the world says we are, but rooted in the very character of who God is and who he has declared his people to be. Stand firm in that. See, the world wants us to hear that our value is found in lesser things, but this declares that our value is not rooted in how the world may see us or treat us, but in the price God paid in his son to redeem us as revealed in this word. You were ransomed. You were bought with a price. Stand firm in the grace of God. Our purpose is not found in temporal truths that fade away or temporal pursuits that fade away. Our purpose is found, according to 2 Peter, in that we know and we proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. Stand firm in that. And we are to stand firm that our future, not just the now, our future is set in Christ is not determined by the uncertainties of this world or of his worldly leaders, but by the living hope promised and revealed in the living word of God. Stand firm in that living hope. So as we bring this letter to a close and we hear the encouragement and the admonition that Peter gives to those disciples then, it is the same to us, brothers and sisters. This makes known to us the true grace of God. And as we pour our lives and our hearts to know the true grace of God together, not on our own, as the people of God purchased by God for a price of His Son, we stand firm in the true grace of God. So I'm going to ask the team to come back up and we're going to sing again a song of response. 
And as they come and as we prepare to stand and sing, I'm going to read just these last few words from Peter, this letter, to us, over us, and close this time and we'll continue to sing. Peter says this, this, all that I've written you, this is the true grace of God. Know it, study it, read it, memorize it, feast on it, and stand firm in it. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Peace to all of you. And here's the way the letter ends. Don't miss this. Peace to all of you in Christ. In Christ. We're in union with Him. We've been purchased by His blood. And by nature of our union with Him, we are in a dynamic union with one another. We belong to something bigger than ourselves. Stand firm. Father, thank you for this word. Lord, I pray we never take for granted the gift of your word that you have preserved, you have inspired, you have delivered to us. And God, I pray us, just like those elect exiles 2,000 years ago that Peter wrote to, Lord. Let us read, meditate, feast on, pray through, study, teach, proclaim, declare the grace of God that is written in this book. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here that in a world that everything is trying to uproot us from truth, Lord, I pray by your grace and by your spirit we will stand firm in the true grace of God. Help us. And Lord, even as we prepare to sing this song now, Lord, help us to know what is truth and what we believe and what your word says and stand firm in that truth. For Jesus' sake we pray. And all God's people said together, Amen. Why don't you stand?